Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Hey, man, thanks for listening to my interview with Dr. Ken Adams. We are talking about adult children of sex addicts. So if you grew up in a family where sex addiction was present, in this episode, you're going to learn how that may have shaped you and how it may have set you up for the shame that you carried and some other behaviors as an adult and how you show up in relationships. If you are a parent and your own sex addiction has played a part in your family and in the lives of your kids, you're also going to get some really challenging and wise advice. Regardless, this is a huge topic. So much has been said about adult children of alcoholics, but this is a new conversation about adult children of sex addicts, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I am excited to welcome back to the show Dr. Ken Adams, who is an expert on sex addiction and enmeshment and one of the co-authors of a new book called A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you. Nice to be here. This topic is so important, and yet no one's really talking about it. So I've I've had this book on my mind for, gosh, 20 years easy, probably 30. And I I knew it needed to be written, and I wanted to write it, Um, partly because I had grown up with a sexually addicted parent and of this duplicity in the family system, so I knew firsthand what it was like. And it was hard to find a lot of attention around it in my journey. You know, I got a lot of good stuff out of my uh, addiction recovery models. I got a lot of good stuff on adult children of alcoholics, but none of it really talked about in detail this carry shame exactly. Different models did it. So I wanted to write it, but I knew instinctively that if I wrote this book and I asked the reader to begin telling their story, that I needed to tell mine. And I thought to myself, I'm not doing it alone, though. <laughs> I'm not going to be the only one putting and writing my my journey and growing up in my family. And I needed to do it in a way that didn't trespass on my parents and didn't put them down. And I felt I was I was loving in my discourse about how I described what happened in my family. And I ended the story in, in a recognition of their love for each other and the fact that the both of them were were impacted by the addiction that that it took away the love and um so i it took me a while to get there and so unfortunately my two co-authors dr mary meyer and Kelly vandegaard one day cornered me at a workshop and and i had been talking to colleagues about wanting to write this book and they said okay we'll do it and so i was very supported and felt grateful um that uh, these two i didn't know them well at all they were colleagues from a distance. So I was very grateful they joined me. And so your readers will find the first three chapters are our personal stories. And then we get down to business and we talk about roles, characteristics, recovery. Here's what you need to do. Uh, and and ultimately, one of the things we like about the recovery model, the recovery models of treatment say, telling your story reduces shame. But, but telling your story 
in the right context. So if my father was an alcoholic and a sex addict, just talking about the alcoholism doesn't fully reduce the shame. So the proper identification, the proper narrative has to happen. You know, I'm at the more the tail end of my career. It's really, for me, um, a contribution just strictly from my heart. I wanted it to, to help people. I don't have any big intentions of doing much with it. I mean, I'll probably do some workshops for, for a therapist to help train them, but I don't have a big investment in this thing, you know, otherwise, other than helping people heal. So we hope it does that. You've recently done some research on adult children of sex addicts. What have you learned? Yeah, that's, uh, well, I did a survey of 100 uh, adult children of sex addicts who identify their parent as either when they, when they were asked the question, uh, do you consider one of your parents a sex addict? They either mostly agreed or definitely agreed with the question. So we have a hundred people saying, oh yeah, they, that per, my parent, one of my parents were sexually addicted. Primarily the, the, the fathers, but sometimes the mothers or both as well, by the way. Um, high, high reports, high percentages of adult children reporting that their parents' sexually addicted behavior impacted their sexuality. They felt shame about their parents' behavior. They felt shamed in the family system about their sexuality. And uh, we have about another 88% who report still trying to fix their family as adults. And then we have uh, percentages of like 74% and 72% also reporting being impacted by the spouse, which is which is the part that I'm not surprised by, uh, but I think it's important to begin to talk about. Obviously, the partner or the spouse of the sex addict <clears throat> feels impacted by the duplicity and betrayal. And um, it's often been assumed that their children, their adult children, suffer the same betrayal, but not true, not true. These adult children have a different experience. And it isn't fair to um, consume them underneath the partner trauma model that has been used. So, in fact, these adult children in the survey, and we talked about this in the book, um, also um, uh, report, as I said, 74 to 72% that, one, they were encouraged by the other parent to find fault with the sex addict and to mistrust them. Another high percentage in the 70s, reported feeling disloyal if they didn't take their parents' spouse's side. And 74% reported feeling like the emotional caretaker of that parent. And so these adult children, which is unique to our book and unique to the survey data, it's it's adult children sensitive. Our writing that my co-authors and I, we wrote the book from the perspective of the adult child. We did not write the book from the perspective of the sex addict. We did not write the book from the perspective of the partner. So um, we we think it's, it's, it's high time that people begin to take a look at the generational impact of sexual shame. So that's what we talked about in the book, and that's what the survey data is also reporting, that it seems like the link generationally is the shame. So if you want, I'll just kind of kind of give us a little background there. In, in the sexually addicted systems, 
there's a lot of duplicity about sexuality. On one hand, these family systems over control, over moralize, uh, can be intrusive in an attempt to rein in what someone else is doing that's out of control. So there's mixed messages to the kids. <clears throat> Sometimes kids who you know don't even witness their parents' sexual behavior will feel the the impact of the controlling, dominating influence or the shaming or the inappropriate comments. And so these children then become adults who have children. And their grandchildren, the grandchildren, never having witnessed any of the sexually addictive behavior, are now a generation, two generations down, their parents are trying to control their sexuality because they haven't dealt with the influence of being in a sexually addictive family. So we hope that this, this material would begin to um, put a stop to the generational shaming of sexuality that comes in these sexually addicted systems, okay. which seems to be the trauma link between the generations. Um, and, and it is, it is as you mentioned, you know, uh, new to the field. It, n nothing's ever been written comprehensively about this population. You know, and I learned about uh, um, the adult child concept personally uh, years ago as, a, uh, as an adult child of an alcoholic parent and a sexually, sexually addicted parent. So back in the 80s, the adult children of alcoholics was a big recovery movement, and it really opened the door. Pioneers like Claudia Black and Sharon Wickscheider and so forth um, really opened the door and said, wait a minute, it's not just the alcoholic and the spouse affected, it's the kids. And these kids are growing up and they're stuck in roles and they're stuck in characteristics and maybe they don't drink, but they're passing on the system dysfunction to their kids. So we took that concept and we said, well, the same is true of adult children of sex addicts. So we, we, we modeled our book after that adult children of alcoholics, but we see them as different. And so it is the first comprehensive book ever written on the topic, which we we can lay claims to fame here for. And so we're very excited about opening the door, both the therapists and the recovering community about this. Yeah, I got a chance to read it. And one of the things that really stood out to me were the roles mm -hmm. of a child growing up in a family where there's sex addiction. What are some of those roles? Yeah, so let's let's talk about roles for a minute. So let me let me give your uh listeners a, a kind of a 10,000 foot view. So let's take an alcoholic family just for example. So if you've got an alcoholic parent or even two alcoholic parents, you basically have nobody minding the fort, right? Nobody's being responsible. A lot of neglect in the alcoholic system. So one of the kids becomes the responsible child. That's their role. And unfortunately, it becomes their identity. They grow into adulthood and they pick people to marry who are alcoholics or they're busy fixing their friends and they, they never have a life. They're stuck in a role. So identifying roles that have been mistaken for your identity is critical to be a choice maker and come back to choices in your life. And so we saw the roles a little differently with the sexually addicted family. So for example, the responsible hero in the sexually addicted family is the moral hero. This is a kid who says they feel all that shame. They witness the parents' behavior. They see the fighting and they say, I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to be the police of morality. So I'm the preacher. 
I'm the pastor. I'm the priest. I'm the rabbi. I'm the policeman, policewoman. So I'm going to police people's morality because nobody was in control over here. So I will begin to preach sometimes self-righteously about, about morality. So I become the moral hero and I say to the world, see, my family didn't have any sexual problems. Look at me. Now, the problem is, of course, often these, those caught in the moral champ, we call it the, mor the moral champion role. Those caught in the moral champion role actually have oftentimes a secret sexual life. Not always, but sometimes. And they oftentimes will displace the shame in their controlling efforts onto other people that they grew up with. So learning to de-roll and say, wait a minute, I'm not the moral police of the world. I may still want to be a pastor, but I'm not here to condemn you because that's my shame from my family. So we encourage the moral champion to learn to be playful. Oftentimes they're very rigid about sexual matters. They can't play sexually. They view other people's sexuality with contempt if it's not like theirs. So if they're non-heteronormative, for example, they they tend to project shame and judgment. The uh the other the other roles that we identified was the emotional caretaker comforter. The kid in the family who tunes to mother and says, Oh, don't worry, I know daddy's bad, but I'm going to take care of you. I'll comfort you. Or they might comfort daddy. So this is the kid who grows up and might become a therapist, <laughs> or they become a nurse, or they become a doctor. They, they come into the helping profession, right, sometimes. And so we have to teach that kid as an adult to, wait a minute, you don't have to caretake the whole world. It's a part of you, but it's not your identity, and it wasn't your responsibility to take care of your parent. Um and then kind of a close cousin to that is what I wrote about with the meshment to, on when he's married to mom and suddenly seduced my other books, is the surrogate spouse. This is a kid who more specifically is not just the, not really only the emotional caretaker, but he says, mommy, I'll be your new husband. I will replace the bad daddy. Or it's the young adolescent girl who becomes the sexualized girlfriend because she sees that her father is only interested in sexy women. So she begins to adopt to his need for a sexualized girlfriend. <clears throat> and then um, sort of falling right out of that uh, surrogate spouse role is the kid who identifies with the addict. And he says, oh, yeah, the addict, he's got, he or she's got the power. They don't play by the rules. They do what they want. My other parent looks like a victim and helpless. I don't want to be like her. I want to be like him. So they identify with the addict. They become what we call the seducer addict. The, the kid in the family who adopts the addiction and grows into adulthood. I gave a talk. Um, my first public talk on this book was back in December. <clears throat> and it was a small group of sex recovering sex addicts, very de dedicated sex addicts. And a couple, two or three of them were quite unnerved by my talk. And one of them broke down crying. And what I began to learn from him, <clears throat> which wasn't a surprise, was that he had been making all these efforts in his recovery to make amends for his behavior so he could eliminate or reduce his shame that he was carrying. But he could never quite get out from under it in spite of his good recovery. What he realized, it wasn't his shame. He was carrying his father's shame. And so he he broke down crying in the in the in the talk that I gave. 
oh my God, it's not just my shame over my behavior, it's the carried shame that my father, I identified with from my father. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a powerful moment. <clears throat> the um, the last role that we identified was what we called the truth teller. And this is a kid in the family who's always in your face. You know, they're calling dad out, they're calling mom out, you know, you guys aren't supposed to be doing this. They either do it as children or they do it as adults. And uh, what we know about the truth teller is they get scapegoated. And at some point, the family system will organize around is or organize the gossip and the contempt onto the truth teller. And they will they will view that kid as an adult as problematic. Why are you bringing this up? Why are you talking about this? Now, one of the things we can learn from the truth teller is there is a time for boundaries, right? I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, but at some point, the adult child who grew up in a family and they go over to the family dinner and dad's still making sexual remarks or sexist remarks about women's bodies or God forbid about his his uh, daughter-in-law's body, that's got to stop. And so there does, the truth teller says, oh no, don't let that pass. And so at some point, the recovering adult child has to learn to say, look at dad, you're going to continue to make inappropriate comments. Uh, my family and I will have to leave. Mom, if you continue to, you know, talk to me about your problems with dad, I'm going to have to leave. So at some point, we learn from the truth teller that boundaries are necessary in the recovery process, which isn't the same as going out and confronting your parents. It's more about taking care of self. People will will have some crossover. They may play more than one role. But if once you identify a primary role, it's really critical that you begin to say, wait a minute, do I... Am I saying yes when I mean no? Am I am I abandoning my commitment to my family or my partner to take care of my mother? That's that's up to her. It's unfortunate that she and my dad have this situation and she feels betrayed by my dad. But the truth is she has her own higher power. That's for her to deal with. I've got to live my life, right? Which is hard for these kids as adults to do because they want to repair the family they grew up in. And they want to fix the shame. They want to somehow magically go back in time and undo what can't be undone. And so part of the other recovery process, again, getting a little ahead of ourselves, is is grieving. And coming to terms with, you know, my family was what it was. It's never going to be what it wasn't. And it may be that they can't really change much. And I may have to live with a renegotiated relationship with them that isn't as close as I would like. And so as soon as somebody can accept the sober reality of who my family is, what role I play, the the more efficiently I can come up against my losses and then see what's left, as opposed to continue to try to fix them. That's a big issue. It's a big issue when I see with enmeshment. It's a big issue with these adult children. They're trying to fix their families. And, you know, most you you can get one kid out of the family, one member of the family who can change, sometimes more than one. But it's hard to get a whole system to change. It's possible. And once once what we know about family systems is that the system as a whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So if one of the kids begins to change and say, look, you guys are nuts. Why are you putting up with this? You know, dad's been having affairs for years. 
that system will begin to organize around the need to keep silent and try to quiet that kid down as an adult. So the siblings will call. Why are you bringing this up? Why are you talking about? How do you know dad had affairs? Right? They begin to organize around the system's need, which is to be quiet, to stick our heads in the sand and not talk about this stuff. And, you know, one of the one of these things we see in, in sexually addicted family systems is this lot of duplicity about sexual matters. So there's a there's a phobia around even talking about sex or sex education that if we talk about it, we're giving permission. On the other hand, one of the parents is out of control, right? And so we're not going to talk about sex. We're going to cover your eyes when an R-rated scene comes on and people are kissing on the show. We're going to be phobic around sexuality because your dad or your mom over there is out of control. And we don't want you really to see what's happening here. But what happens to a kid at 12 years of age, and he sees somebody on TV or he's got a crush on somebody, and their parent says you shouldn't feel that way. Well, don't look. They feel the shame that is not theirs to feel. The system's shame gets downloaded into that kid's natural curiosity. There is the problematic issue right there. Yeah, inheriting shame was such a big theme. And learning to disinherit the shame that has been passed down to us. One of my Mm -hmm. favorite lines from this book was at the end, you offer a bill of rights and responsibilities that adult children of sex addicts have rights and we have responsibilities. And the very first one says, I have the right to live a life free from sexual shame. Mm-hmm. And then it says, it is my responsibility to do the work of releasing sexual shame that never belonged to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That feels so empowering. Like I have the right to live free. And yet that responsibility is not easy to do right. the work of releasing that shame. Right. It also, it, what we wanted to do with that, among other things, was we, we didn't want to just create a bill of rights because sometimes people weaponize that. And then they take it to their parents and say, hey, look at look at this book. Look what you've done to me. And we wanted to say, wait a minute. <clears throat> yes, it's unfair that you've been burdened, but you're going to have to do the work. And we don't want you to weaponize this. We want you to both acknowledge your right, but also your responsibility to create the world and the, the sexual romantic loving relationship that you want and not be a victim to waiting around for someone to do it for you. And to, and to be in your helplessness or into your victim story per se. Obviously, you need to acknowledge that which was done to you. And that is part of the sort of letting go of the shame, right? I just kind of gave you this idea that you're sitting in a sexually addicted family system, right? <clears throat> and you're 8 to 10 to 12 years of age, and you're all sitting around watching a movie. And you know mom and dad have fought, and she's made accusations that he isn't always uh, he's out and he's got, he smells of perfume and, and she complains about his porn use. And you have some, you have some exposure to conflict about sexual matters, but not a lot. They keep most of it under the wraps, right? But there you are sitting there and there's been a lot of not talking about sex and your mother covers your eyes when, a, when there's a half naked scene on the TV movie that they weren't expecting. And you feel this and you were kind of curious and you feel this immediate shame that I'm bad for being curious. What, what's my mother doing? 
She says we should turn the channel off, right? And um, what happens is that shame gets gets downloaded, internalized into the natural curiosity. And so then you grow up, and if you have too much of that, I mean, it's hard to grow up in this culture and not be shamed to some extent. But in sexually addictive family systems, it's worse. And it's more it's more prevalent in the system itself uh, and coming from both sides, both the addict and the partner. And so that kid carries that shame. And so part of the responsibility is to be in a process of healing and saying, wait a minute. I, I get to tell that part of me that was 12 years old. It's okay, buddy. You, it's okay to be curious. Yes, you don't. I'm not giving you permission to do whatever you want, but it's okay that you were curious, right? You have to sort of begin to change the downloaded message and begin that new permission to give that part of you the freedom to say, you know, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I'm responsible for not you know, uh, deciding I get to break all the rules and do whatever I want sexually, but I don't have to over-moralize this. I don't have to over-control myself. You know, I get to be free to say, oh, no, this is what I'd like sexually in our relationship, hon, right? The freedom to be, to have sexuality be more integrated is just part and parcel of the self and not have it housed in the shame. So you've got to talk to that part and say, look at you did nothing wrong. And if you have done behaviors that have hurt others or yourself, you do what they tell you in the 12-step programs. You make amends and you take responsibility and you make the changes. Uh, and that's one way to let go of shame. But the way we're talking about is to go back into your family of origin story and say, no, 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 dad, mom, you can have this. Take your control, take your acting out behavior. I'm leaving it behind, right? So we have... We have great treatment models, you know, different trauma treatment models. Um, you know, the, the nice thing about the therapy field right now, it's rich with effective treatment. <clears throat> and you can pick and choose, you know, therapists that meet your preferences and begin to dismantle and process through some of that shame. Now, does it ever fully go away? Mm. If it's if it's been around long enough in you, probably not. But you can diminish a lot of the intensity around it. Absolutely, that's so awesome. Mm -hmm. I wonder what you might say to a parent who is realizing the impact that they have had on their children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'm sort of beginning to um, suggest to parents. Well, clearly one is, is get yourself in some healing process. So if you're still in this system, if you're still acting out, if you're still trying to control somebody who you can't control, time to get yourself some help, right? First and foremost. Um, and um, to be forgiving, but responsible. And so that means learning to make amends and take responsibility with your children, your adult children. Let's start with the adult children. With children uh, below 18, talking about sexual matters, about my addiction story has to be done very carefully and very conservatively and age appropriate. So I urge your listeners to find the data out there, Google it, um, and find who's done some work with how best developmentally to talk to kids. But let's talk about the adult kids, the adult children who we focused on in the book. If you see your adult child struggling with their own addiction, 
or with the struggle in relationships, I think the addict has an ongoing amends to say, look, I love you. I'm sorry you're having to deal with this. Um, this is on me. I passed on to you some bad messages, and I wish I could take them back. I can't. But I just want you to know you deserve to be loved in the way that feels right to you. So I think there's a way that that the addict can carry on the amends process periodically when they see their adult child struggling. I think they need to unburden them. That's my current recommendation and assessment. It doesn't mean you go and you prone yourself and you subjugate yourself to your kid or you put up with your kid's abuse or anybody else's abuse, but you take note and you don't excuse yourself when you see your kid struggling. And I think the same is true of partners. I think that partners, you know, if we listen to the adult children, they're saying, look, I don't want to be drawn in taking care of you. I'm done with that. You've cost me too. And so when we asked the question, um, I felt caught in a tug of war between my parents, six out of 10. Um, I was encouraged by my other parent to find fault and mistrust of sexually addicted parents, six out of 10. I feel 74% reported the emotional caretaker. The partner also has to back off and they have to stop weaponizing the sex addict's behavior and use it as leverage uh, through their children. It's unfair. And we understand that partners feel it's unjust that the kid, as a kid or as an adult, still loves his father, even though he has betrayed his wife, the mother. And she doesn't like that he has or she has still an affectionate bond with him. But the truth is, she's got to get out of the way because he will find it difficult and intrusive if she demands loyalty to her. So they, too, have to make amends. And this uh, one particular um, parent, uh, woman, part and partner talked about her amends to her children. And she says it was tough, but it was freeing to do it. So I think the message to both parents is it's time to take your kids out of the middle of your war, take responsibility, unburden them. And in doing so, we stand the best chance to stop the sexual shame from being passed down. And which doesn't mean you give up your right as a partner to say, well, I'm still upset with my sexually addicted uh, spouse here, right? I'm just not going to draw my kid into it and turn my kid against them. Because the kids are saying, we don't like that. And we don't want you to do that. Now, I think that will fall on some difficult ears. But again, um, we are trying to be adult child sensitive first while we uh, also take in consideration the complexities of a system that has a lot of sh- a lot of shame, a lot of sexual shame, um, and a lot of uh, behaviors that are organized around their shame. Yeah. What do you hope will happen as adult children of sex addicts begin to realize some of these things and begin to tell our stories? Well, you know, I think it's sort of implied in kind of how we're chatting. I, I think my biggest hope is, is we they stop passing on uh, reactive behaviors or modeling of behaviors to their children that cause them to feel shame and burden, that sexuality becomes something they're in conflict with. 
that's my biggest hope is that it, it's a it's a piece of the puzzle that says, look, it, yes, you have responsibility to link your sexuality to a value system, um, but it's but your best course of action isn't to shame it that way, right? It isn't working that way. And we have lots of evidence that it doesn't work. We have high, for example, we have high <clears throat> reports of excessive or compulsive pornography use of strong faith-based people, for example. <clears throat> and so you think to yourself, well, does that mean they're not praying enough? No, that's not what that means. It just means that it's treating sex, treating sexual problematic behavior as only a moral issue isn't sufficient. Okay. And if you're too excessive around moralizing it, it gets the opposite effect. It causes shame, and then the person goes into hiding, and then they're in conflict. So my biggest hope is it helps to unburden that conflict and it brings some healing to the family. You know, I'm not going to stay around Thanksgiving dinner if, Dad, if you're going to talk about women's bodies. I'm sorry. I know you think it's funny. I don't. So I'm going to leave. I hope you understand. Hope to see you next year. Right? We hope <laughs> We hope that, that this brings some healing to the bigger system. But first and foremost, we hope that it unburdens the adult child from their shame, and they have more satisfying, romantic, sexual, and emotional relationships in which they can participate in and um, and, and have the true uh, beauty and um, uh, joy that sexuality is meant to bring. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, it's removed from the extremes. I'm hoping that it becomes... Um, for this group, the sweet fruit that it's meant to be, um, as opposed to the forbidden fruit. I love that. Yeah, there's been so much healing that's come through the movement of adult children of alcoholics. And mm -hmm. it's exciting to consider what might also happen for adult children of sex addicts. Yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Maybe it goes without saying, but what's your favorite thing about healing? When I see somebody change. You know, where I see that they become unburdened um, and uh, it's very, it's very gratifying um, to know that that's happened and to watch somebody do that. You know, we see that to some degree, say, for example, in our enmeshment workshops, you know, I get a chance. I still do those. I um, periodically <clears throat> I get a chance to see and witness some changes right in you know, the here and now. So that's, that's a very gratifying part of the healing process is when somebody sheds that shame and they can really get out from under it. Well, it really helped me. Thank you so much. Good. You're welcome. And guys, you can get a copy of A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts here at the link in the show notes. Always remember, you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well placed.